Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. What was it like to be one of the innocent teenage girls brought into the court of Louis XV, not knowing what you were getting into, and ending up as a little bird in a gilded cage? Living in a French villa in Versailles may sound glamorous, but what was it like to really live it? Well, we'll welcome back an old friend to dive into the days of lace, intrigue, and exploitation. But first, hello history lovers and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure on our YouTube or Rumble channels. You can pay me a visit at HistoryAuthor.com or find me on social media. Plus, you can read my columns in the Washington Times to get my analysis of current events in light of history. Today, best-selling novelist Eva Stachniak offers up some history that will fit very well with her historical fiction and that I can definitely see tapping for future opinion pieces. Her novel is The School of Mirrors. It's a rich and enjoyable story. It focuses not just on the ribald details that you might associate with the French court, but on the relationship between a mother and daughter. They managed to succeed despite the many obstacles to women at the time and the fact that the most powerful man in France is dedicated to keeping them down. Eva Stachniak was born in Poland and moved to Canada in 1981, and she's worked for Radio Canada International and Sheridan College, where she taught English and humanities. She's the best-selling author of novels that look great on my shelf. You will certainly enjoy them on your shelf. Those are The Winter Palace, Empress of the Night, Necessary Lies, and Garden of Venus. In addition to my first novel and first experience with Eva Stachniak, that was about the novel The Chosen Maiden. You could find our interview on that story in our archives. I was also honored that Eva asked me to emcee a book event and Q&A at the Kosciuszko Center in Manhattan some years back in what we now like to call the before times when there were no lockdowns, no masks, and no social distancing. You should absolutely check out the Kosciuszko Center if you're interested in this dual American and Polish hero and wondering how he got to be that guy. Visit our guest for more at evastachniak.com or find her on Facebook and Twitter. Her last name is spelled S-T-A-C-H-N-I-A-K. All right, now that we've arrived back in the 18th century and we're putting on our fancy French clothes, Let's join Eva Stachniak and see just what lessons are being taught and what secrets are being left unsaid in The School of Mirrors. And here we are with novelist Eva Stachniak. She's joining us from Toronto, Canada, and she's going to discuss her new novel, The School of Mirrors. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Eva. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have you. I'm glad we've stayed in touch all of these years. And so as soon as I saw you had another novel out, I said, well, I have to get that novel right now because I wanted my hands on it. And folks that are watching on YouTube can see behind my head that it even has that little advanced copy. I said, send it to me. It's okay if it has a few typos because I wanted to dive right into it. You dedicate this book, School of Mirrors, to the memory of your mother. And then I noticed that part one begins with young Veronique saying, my mother didn't tell me much. And so that relationship between mother and daughter and relationships in general between mothers and daughters and fathers and daughter in this case, it's really central to this novel. So I wondered what relationships you drew upon in your own life to make these situations ring true, especially that central mother-daughter relationship here in the School of Mirrors. I think it's a very perceptive question, and and actually, I didn't notice that I started it. You know, with, with the, my mother didn't tell me much because uh, that that was a realization that the level that the novel worked on a deeper level than I thought. So that was the writing, but there was also drawing on my own experience and. 
Uh, yes, it is. Um, Mother-daughter relationship is extremely important in it, and intergenerational uh, uh, relationships are important. The mother, especially, because um, you know, I grew up in Poland. I grew up. Uh, I was born when Poland was still communist, and 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 there were a lot of secrets around. You know, the the parents didn't really tell children too much because it was dangerous. You know, my mom. Uh, was part of the communist underground. She was imprisoned after the war. She never wanted to talk about it, but you know, I knew about that. But there were other things I never, never learned about it. So I guess that sense of how do you connect to a mother or to parents of whom who, who, who hold secrets and some of these secrets you will never know and some of them you will. So I think that was a very, very important uh, theme in the novel and also the the you know in the in the meantime I, I raised it a son but I also became a grandmother in the meantime and 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 I have sense of a longer view of generations it, my grandsons will never know my mother they will not know much about my childhood you know they I can tell them things but what do I tell them how do I tell them so that that becomes meaningful they are still small but when they grow up so I think all these thoughts about relationship to your parents, but also the relationship to future generations and how, how, does the, how does the past, family past and historical past, which is intertwined, impact the generations ahead of you and, and you and your life. So that's one big thing. And the other big thing is, is dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, and that is something that I explore in the novel. And how does this loss of memory uh, impact a personal relationship? How is it possible to connect with someone who doesn't remember? Not only doesn't want to tell you because that's one thing, but doesn't remember. So that was another very, very important thing for me to explore. And I think that my, my own mom died of Alzheimer's and, uh, and the memory of her last years was really pivotal when I wrote the novel. And if, you know, we're not going to give away too much of the plot, but if you, the reader gets into that part, you will hear and you'll see that I do have a personal connection with someone who is losing, who, who was losing her mind. And not easy to write either, I imagine, because a big part of writing a novel is you have to remember, you don't want to say somebody has red hair and then a few chapters later that they have blonde hair. Yet a person who is going through that dementia may confuse you, may call you by the wrong name. And you have to be able to draw attention to that and say, that's not a mistake. I'm trying to illustrate this very painful situation. And then inside, I'm sure for you, as you were saying about your mother and being in the underground and being in Poland under communist rule, there's something you just don't want to look at. That's probably hardwired into you. I imagine that was very difficult to have to go back and then say, no, no, I'm writing this as a, no as a novelist. I'm not writing this as a daughter of somebody who unfortunately suffered from Alzheimer's. I think it's both. I think that you, you know, as a, as a writer, you learn to distance yourself to your own memories and process them so that you can finally write about them. It takes time. You cannot do it. I mean, I couldn't do it right away. It, it sort of took over 10 years and, and before these memories became accessible to me in, in, a, in a way that, uh, that I was able to write about them rather than personal writing, yes. So I think time helps, distance. Uh, the fact that I write historical uh, fiction, uh, that is another window to it because I'm able to get into this different time. I don't have to talk about communist Poland. I can talk about the revolution. I can talk about the excesses of the Ancien Regime in France, right? You know, I, I can, though the processes and the and the silences, I think are exactly the same. I don't think we we change that much as humans. Uh, we just put different disguises, you know, every epoch, every, every, uh, every time, every decade offers us different props. But deep down, the human nature doesn't change that much. Well, it's perfect because leads right into my next question. And it's about the fact that you do have this Polish background. You're born in Poland, as you mentioned. And I've said to you when we met in, in private at the at the Kasuszko Center that if I wasn't Greek, I think I would I would choose to be Polish. And it's not that different. I guess I should choose somebody very different, maybe Botswana, somewhere very far away. But that that feeling that that's central to your identity and that that's your hobby, as I've heard Eric Metaxas said, a Greek is his hobby is being Greek, is is your culture. And this is partially because of the very similar 
ideas of occupation and, and of being persecuted and ha having people try to stamp out your culture. So you read a lot about Poland. And when we did that event, the first man, by the way, the Q&A at that Kosciuszko Center, I'm sure you remember, he stood up and said, why aren't you giving this in, this in Polish? Why are, you, why are you doing it in English? And you explained why and said, well, this, this is an English, the American, rather Polish organization. And most people here, they may not all speak Polish and this kind of thing. And so that central identity and that that man's question made me think, reading the School of Mirrors, that here you're in France and you're not writing about Poland. And I'm sure that there are some of your readers who pick up your novel and want to read another Polish story. So how did you go there? Why write a story here about the French monarchy instead of going back to your roots and instead of going into the Polish story and trying to tell that deeper story? I know you've done it many times, but sometimes readers can can demand that of you. So was that at all what you had to balance here? What was it about France that you said, oh, I can write this and I want to write this because it's interesting and maybe I'll step out of my comfort zone a little and into some other memories that are part of the universal human experience, like you were just saying. Well, first of all, I, you know, I've, by now I've lived longer in Canada than I ever lived in Poland. And I think that it begins to show I am uh, the Poland that exists at the moment fascinates me. I love going there. I love watching it, but I'm getting more and more um, in the sense of thinking about it as a distant land. You know, this is not no longer, you know, it's not the same country that I left, you know, which is I'm very happy about. But on the other hand, I don't really know it that well. So I think that that link, it, it doesn't, not with culture, not with language, but I think with the actual uh, country, it it changes, it it, uh, it morphs, and then the second thing is that for me, books choose me. I don't really choose the topic that much. It has something has to grab me, and you know, funny enough, it all started with a Polish uh, little Polish link because I came across a memoir um, of the uh, maid of honor Madame de Pompadour, who was writing um, about. King Louis XV pretending to be a Polish count when he was seducing the girls from Deer Park from his from his private uh, sort of uh, arrangement um, uh, that is set the center of the novel. And I thought, oh, so you pretend to be Polish? Okay, that's a fair game. I am Polish. I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> you know, so that was my first little. Thing. And then, of course, you know, why did he pretend to be Polish? Because his wife was Polish. He was married to a Polish woman, Queen Marie Leszczyńska. So, in fact, all these, you know, Louis, the, you know, the, 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 her children were half Polish. And then, of course, the Louis the Sixteenth would be a grandson of a Polish and French, uh, you know, couple. So there is, this is the time in, in, in France, in the history of France, that where there was a Polish queen and she was not a very, she was not a very consequential queen in terms of power because she had none. But she, for me, she was very interesting and she does appear in the novel. So I, there are these little things, but in a sense, I think that Louis XV, by choosing to pretend to be a Polish count, sort of, forced myself into this novel and then I just went through this you know I followed this link um, I think that uh, also uh, what I'm interested in very much is the universal human experience at this point and how what I lived in through in Poland and my Polish identity how does it make me see it but it doesn't so it's it's not I'm not detached from it, as I as I said, you know, that living with secrets, living with last loss of memory, all these themes are there, and these are very Polish themes, and they are very universal themes at the same time. So I think I'm sort of broadened. I have broadened my interest. Um, if I come across a Polish story that fascinates me, I'll tell it. At this point, this particular one fascinated me, and it started with a little little seed of Polishness in it. I knew that there would be some in there if I dug deep enough, right? When you start picking up one of your books, you mentioned that you've lived in Canada now, I believe since 81. So 40 years that you've lived there, 
makes you a different person. It's certainly the same in America. And I know my grandfather, who I, did, I didn't meet, he passed away in the mid 50s, 1950s. So I, I never met him, but he always dreamed, my father said he was gonna go back to Greece someday. He said, but you try going back once or Greeks come here, they say, oh, you're Americanized now. And this even happens to my wife for people who look at North America and think, well, there's not any difference really. Her family will say, oh, you're American now. That's such an American attitude. It's so different. And the cultures are very, very similar to certainly to outsiders. People notice it. And Irish Americans, they go back to Ireland and there's that difference where they say, well, they consider themselves very Irish here in America and in Canada. My wife's Irish Canadian, but you go to Ireland and they don't, they don't consider you Irish. It's, it's such, it is fascinating. Here we are talking about it. And this shows why the school of mirrors is so interesting because that's that central idea of where do I come from? And we all ask that. And here you have a daughter saying, who are my parents? I, I did, it's not enough for me just to know my bills are paid. <laughs> that's not enough. I, it's not enough just that, oh, you're here, be quiet. And I, I love that you bring your own experience to that. They, children question, 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 and adults, especially if they're fearing for their lives, are trying to get them to stop. It's very fascinating. And for you, and this is my question, the pandemic is something we're dealing with right now. And so when I mentioned that you're in Canada now, I'm thinking of you talking about going to bringing your story to France. Did that affect you at all in the way that you researched this? Because you couldn't just easily hop on a plane and then come home and do some of your research. Or had you visited many of these locations in the School of Mirrors? Did you just have that in your head? Did the lockdowns affect any of that research at all? Well, not the research, luckily. I was done with the research by 2018, or at least with the, the, the research related to travel. So in that sense, I was lucky because I went to, I managed to go to Versailles and to the town of Versailles and to the palace, to all the locations that I describe in the novel. I visited the Museum of the History of the French Revolution in Bézille, which has, you know, very, very great amount of artifacts that, you know, some of them are in the novel. A lot of them just illustrated for me the times. I visited the fascinating uh, Flaubert Museum of the History of Medicine in Rouen, where, which has the, uh, an exhibit devoted to the French midwife, who is uh, Madame de Cordier, who is very, very important in the novel, and her obstetric mannequin that also is featured in the novel. So I was lucky in that sense that I was able to do all that uh, before coming, um, before actually sitting down and, and writing and rewriting the novel. But the rest, you know, a lot of it was also because it's the 18th century, a lot of research um, involves reading 18th century sources. That is something that we, we do very easily through the internet at the moment. You know, the rare books are digitized. You can get into 18th century uh, literature without any problems. So in that sense, it did not impact me, but it did impact the writing um, the, sort of the rewriting and the work you know, of the, the sort of the final touches uh, of the book, the final draft, which is usually where a lot of uh, highlighting comes into the uh, into in, in, into play. And and you know what was the most important? The sense of being locked down, because in the first part of the novel, it is Veronique who is in the cage. She's locked down. She cannot really move. And as I was writing it in drafts, it was, yeah, I wrote about it. But when I was correcting and rewrite, you know, sort of putting this final time, I said, yeah, I, I feel it now. I know what it means to be locked down. I know what it means not to be able to move, not to be able to go, not to be able to see people you want to see. So I think that the book really, uh, the, the, the part, many parts of the book uh, helped. Um, were helped by this sense. And the, the second thing is, you know, the second part of the novel, which happens during the revolution, the, the French Revolution, in, in, in the atmosphere of political uh, rows and, and quarrels and frenzy and, and accusations and hatred, and people are so intolerant, they don't listen to each other. A lot of it is happening, you know, sort of brought forth during the pandemic, though the conflicting voices, people not listening to each other, yelling, screaming, being, at, you know, in the media, in, in anywhere, you know, you, you went to a store and there would be someone without a mask, right? And then everybody froze and, and, and some people would, would say, leave right away. The others would say, don't you say that? You know, there was, there was the sense of 
and, and I thought, as I was rewriting the scenes of the French Revolution, I thought, that's what these people felt too. That's what they were polarized. There was only one truth or the other truth. There was nothing in between for a lot of them. And here it was my character who was trying to not to get caught into it, which is me, you know, too. I'm trying not to be <laughs> locked into one worldview without compassion and understanding of where other people are coming from. So I would say the final writing and rewriting, the final rewrite of the novel, which is which is a very something I love doing because I'm already in control. I know everything what's going to happen. I, I'm returning to the manuscript with this bird eye view. I know where everything is leading. There's nothing to discover. But it's like, you know, we have a painting, you put the painting is there, now you are putting highlights, you know, bringing this a little bit forth, something a little, you know, pushing something into the background. Well, that, uh, the, the sense of being in, within the pandemic and, and also living with death, within the threat of death, you know, you don't think about it, that you can be, especially before the vaccines were available, you know, you have this sense of, oh my God, you know, you hear of, of friends, of people around you who are fine today, dead two or three days later, which was uh, normal in the 18th century. And, and I knew about it, but now I felt it and, it, um, and that changed the writing. You mentioned there the machine, and this sounds, I'm sure, very mysterious to people. You described it a little bit there, but also the idea of being a midwife and how this was an opportunity back then for women. It was one of the few things that they could do and reasonably call a career that was respectable. And this is especially challenging for your central character. So you wanted to bring that up. You asked me to if uh, I would add that to my notes so that we could discuss it. So let's have at it. This machine, I, after you told me about it, I looked up the picture and I said, well, not what I expected at all, but where else do you learn, right? Nobody wants you practicing on, on their pregnant wife or on them when they are pregnant and giving birth or practicing on their new infant. No, no, no thank you at all for, for that right especially at this time when it is such a dangerous thing giving birth it's almost a it's almost not a death sentence but it's a it's staring at death certainly in this period so tell us about that machine and why that was fascinating to you how it came to be part of your book well, it it was. I mean, I as you know from all my novels, I I really do a lot of historical research when I write. You know, so I try to to learn as much as possible about medicine, about art, about uh, selling things, buying things, prices, wages. I want to have uh, the the real understanding of the historical texture of the novel. And at some point, I was as I was writing, I realized that I need a midwife. You know, my character is uh, needs a midwife. So I said, okay, uh, how do I, I don't really, you know, I know a lot about the history of the 18th, 18th century medicine, but I don't know anything about midwifery in the 18th century, not really, um, just horror stories that I came, uh, you know, sort of about uh, childbirth, death and childbirth, as you are mentioning, a very dangerous moment in a woman's life. And then I came across a book called The King's Midwife. This is a biography, historical biography by Nina uh, uh, Gelbert, um, a California professor, who, just, who, who, who told me a story of an incredible woman um, who, in fact, is connected to Versailles because she, um, she devised an, a mannequin on which she could teach midwifery to young peasant women all over France. And first of all, I, I learned that midwifery in France was on an extremely high level, that the midwives were very well qualified, that they had to pass very stringent exams in front of 18 uh, people, who, including the surgeon, uh, royal surgeon and others. And they were, once they were certified, they went to monthly lectures, they attended autopsies. So they, you know, and that was not true of other countries at that time, you know, not, not um, so, and they had a very, very high position because of that in the um, in French society. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. And then Reading about Madame de Corquier, I realized that she felt that if you were a Parisian woman in the 18th century, and if you, especially if you were rich, you have access to these wonderful midwives who were very well um, educated and they, they could sort of safely guide you through the whole process. But if you happen to live in a village somewhere in, a, in French provinces, you were stuck with Famsage, you know, some, some old woman who was, uh, you know, who used to be a midwife all the time and she wasn't bad but she was not she really didn't know what um, a 
well-qualified Parisian midwife knew, and she didn't have the same resources. So she had she came up with a mission to travel all over France and teach young peasant women. She wanted to leave the knowledge with the, the young. And uh, it was a, so she designed a six week course and she would go there, teach the course. And then these young women were practicing on this mannequin because um, she, she believed, and, and I, we know she was right, that the theory itself will not do, that these girls, these young women had to practice in order to feel confident to start delivering babies. And she appealed to Louis XV for funding and to his credit, he gave her the funding and he made her, gave her a title, the King's Midwife. So she traveled all over France with the King's permission and with sort of designated, um, with the salary, her costs were paid and the costs of the courses were paid. And therefore, every time she delivered her course, she left a copy of this mannequin with the provinces. So there were hundreds of them all over France, but they were not easy to preserve, probably very well used to. And the result of it was that only one single copy uh, is still in existence. And you can see it in the Rouen, in the Flaubert Museum of the History of Medicine, where I managed to go. And you know, believe me, I felt so moved standing in front of this machine. You know, it is faded by now. It's, whatever was pink is now brownish. You can see it was well used, but it was so indigenous. It, it was so uh, ingenious. You know, you, there was a, a womb that um, mirrored a, a, a woman in labor. There were there were two different kinds of fluid, white and red, to imitate blood and waters. You know, breaking. But what what, what I was really taken in, and then she had different inserts for this womb, so she could. So, so these uh, practitioners could practice delivering twins or delivering a breech baby or delivering or checking if the baby is alive or not, if the fetus is um, uh, developing well because she had inserts uh, mirroring a live fetus or dead fetus. You know, so she was, it was such a wonderful idea. Um, and, and it taught these um, young women how to be confident before they actually face the first patient. So I, I had this, this absolute, you know, she did it for over 20 years. They say that she, that she trained over 10,000 uh, young women. And, and very recently, I noticed that the Brooklyn Museum of Art has a little write-up about hers because it's connected with Judy Chicago's dinner party of prominent women over history. So there is even a New York connection to Madame de Cordier. But I found I found this story fascinating, and and um, I was standing, I'm virtually standing, with tears in my eyes when I stood in front of this machine. I'm thinking, how many women were saved? How many babies were saved? What an impact it had on these young peasant women, who instead of being powerless, could actually claim that place in society, and they could stand tall, and they could have a career, and they could be helpful and important in their communities. So. That was one of the inspirations for the novel. And, and you know, Madame de Courtier does appear in the novel once, you know, it described the actual presentation she did at Versailles. I sort of recreated it in my mind, but her spirit is uh, influencing a lot in the story. That, you know, we, we don't need to talk about the plot, but about her spirit, definitely, and about that wonderful historical character, Madame de Courtier, and a wonderful biography of her, the king's midwife, that, that is available, it can be read. Well, it's a perfect tease because I'm fascinated and you mentioned her to me and what I do is I don't read the whole novel because I don't want to give away too many plot points. I like to get the author in soon so I can finish that last half or quarter that I leave to myself to read so I don't know everything and I don't risk going too into the weeds. But that is really, it's humbling to think 10,000 midwives she trains. That's already a lot of people. Think how many infants you deliver over the, over the course of your life. Think how many people you then train. And this is at a time when there's no licensing of doctors. There's no standard medical schools, even if they do know a lot of medicine and they certainly don't have many options back then. It's just not known. There's so much medicine that's unknown. Just think of what we've learned in the last 20 years and then think going back hundreds of years, how little was known. So that is really a great part of the book. And I was glad that you recommended that I bring it up. I want to ask you to read a little bit of the novel, which I like to ask novelists to do. You chose an excerpt, and I always like to say, like with dialogue, what you choose to say 
even just when you enter a room, there's a hundred ways to enter a room. You could say nothing. You could say good morning. You could say good evening. Those tell us two different things about what time it is. You could, you could say so many things. So what the author chooses tells me what she finds important in your case and what you want to share with us. So go ahead and set this up. I believe it's the beginning of the novel and have at it. People can hear, get a little flavor of the School of Mirrors. Yes, I, I would like to start from the very beginning because that was how the novel started. It was the imagining of the life of a young girl whose life, very young girl, she's 13 at the beginning, whose life is upended and it sets in motion the whole novel. So we are going to, you know, the year is 1755 and we are hearing the voice of Veronique who is talking about who she is. My mother didn't tell me much. I would have to go into service, she said. It is not what my late father or she had once hoped for me, but it is how it would have to be. I might still do well for myself if I learn fast, that is, and if I learn to please. At all times, not only when it suits me, willful girl that I am, eager to listen to everyone but my own flesh and blood. Should I have guessed what bargain she has struck for me? Perhaps, but I was still a child, even if I had turned 13 already. I didn't know how to spot danger in the silence between words. I didn't know the sequence of steps in the dance of sacrifice and betrayal. Used women's clothes was my mother's trade. Old taffeta dresses frayed at the hems, and arms rotten with sweat. Fancy court robes, once embroidered with silver and gold, now deprived of adornment, the torn, muddy skirts of suicides fished out of the river. I hated it when she brought them home to sort and mend, soaked through with the stink of their previous owners, filthy, infested with fleas. We lived on Rue Saint-Honoré by then, on the fifth floor of a building overlooking the Quinzeville market. In our old house on Rue de Jardin, Papa had his own printing shop where he printed and sold pamphlets and books, and we all lived in an apartment above it. Here, our rented room was divided with strings on which I hung laundry to dry. We slept in folding beds, my brothers on one, Mama and me on another. We ate on Papa's rickety workshop bench, which doubled as a sewing table. We cooked our meals in the communal kitchen downstairs with its smoking fireplace and damp, moldy walls. A place of constant quarrels over firewood and cooking space and sometimes of blatant thievery. The very day we moved in, I learned its basic rules. Turn your back and your wooden spoon will disappear. Leave your pot unattended and your food will vanish. Marcel was 11 then, Eugene 10, Gaston 8. They no longer attended the parish school, but ran chores for the carpenter or the butcher who had their stalls in the inner yard. Marcel claimed that the carpenter's wife would let him touch her pink tits. Eugene called him a brazen liar. Gaston followed his older brothers in awe. They only came home to eat and sleep. Sometimes when I collected their clothes for washing, in their pockets I discovered dice, stones or dead mice. What would Adele be like had she lived? Children, I often heard Maman say, happen. Then they happen to live or die. God, who has called my sister to his side, is inscrutable. He can take you because he loves you or because he wants to punish you for your sins. Lying in bed beside Maman at night, I thought about Papa and Adele, wondering where they might be. Adele, I pictured, enveloped in light, joyful in her heavenly bliss as she worships around the heavenly throne, God's faithful and beloved servant. I imagined Papa there too, although sometimes remembering that he was not a child and may have sinned, I saw him in purgatory, restless in the eternal queue of souls, awaiting the time of release. Thank you. Well. What an introduction, <laughs> not, not just to the novel, but to your writing. It's so immersive. And I, I want to say to people that if you have an idea that you want to write fiction, you should read that introduction or just look at it on the page. And I read it already and I'm being swept up in it by the images and by the feelings. You say this is where your idea started or where you started the novel. You knew right away this was going to be your beginning of the novel. This is where you wanted to begin. 
Yes, because, uh, you know, the moment I discovered the existence of Gay Park, of this sort of secret house in the town of Versailles, run by the servants of Louis XV and supervised by Madame de Pompadour, where by deception, this whole group of enablers uh, trafficked and groomed teenage girls for the pleasure of the king, who pretended to be a Polish count. You know, it, it, it's almost the story when you think about it, impossible, but yet it was. And, and you know, and I was thinking, uh, how much do we want? We know everything about, Madame, you know, a lot about Madame de Pompadour and Louis XV and everything else. We even know about the servants who enabled uh, this whole thing. But do we know, so what happens to the girls? Where are these young women whose lives were totally changed by this this sort of deception, because they were not told what they were going to do. They didn't know what they were signing for. The parents were approached. They were told uh, that the girl will be trained to become a lady's uh, maid and that she needs to be removed from home and taken to this place where she will be getting lessons and deportment and manners and everything else that the lady's maid needs. And, and then there is a benefactor, this Polish count, who is mostly in Poland, but sometimes she comes to Versailles and wants to see them. And they have to be very, very grateful because this Polish count is paying for all their dresses and their food for this sort of splendid isolation that they live in and the lessons and the music. And, and, and I, I searched for a lot of details and I found bits and pieces of it. I found a few names. I'm not using the names in the novel, the, no, the, the names Veronique uh, and other names of the girls are uh, imaginary, but um, I found a few incidents and I used them. You know, I actually gave them to Veronique. So she is a composite character in some ways of my understanding how she would have felt and whatever I found in historical sources, because there are some, some things noted about what happened to one of these girls second when we know that some women dismissed, that there were scandals, there were problems. We also know that there were pregnancies and what happened to the children that were born, you know, in some general way. So I used all this, but I wanted to give one of these dear part girls a voice. I wanted her to tell her story. So this is where, where it st started, you know, not just the big history, but the history of the small people caught in big events. Because she was caught in the excesses of, you know, of Versailles. Her daughter will be caught in the French Revolution. Um, so what is it? Um, how does that, these big historical events um, uh, change the lives of people? And, and that's, that's what prompted the novel. And I heard this voice very clear and, and sort of followed it. So that's how it started. You're enjoying my conversation with Eva Stachniak. She's here to share her latest novel. It's called The School of Mirrors. You can visit her at evastachniak.com. And that last name is spelled S-T-A-C-H-N-I-A-K. Kara Black, who is the best-selling author of Three Hours in Paris, calls the School of Mirrors a riveting epic, keenly observed and shining with lush historical detail, and she promises you'll never forget this journey. Eva, I can certainly agree with that. This is an unforgettable book. It's really special, and I can't wait to finish it because, as I said, I have not done that yet. But you talk about details there, or rather, Kara Black talks about details there in the book. And that's so easy to get bogged down in when you are writing a book. You've, you've done all this research. You want to show your research. You're, you're going to Versailles, such a beautiful place. It's easy to have your character stand around looking and describing and saying, this is what I'm seeing and smelling. Oh, I have to remember to mention that. But those things are not as key details. They can't all get into the novel. So I want to ask you, how do you edit that down? What are some of those details that you said, well, this one has to go in because it's so key to the plot. This one I love, I think it's beautiful, maybe a Polish item. And you say, I, I wish I could include that, but that's not. Or after having written so many novels that are so successful, is that just second nature to you now? Is that just a muscle that you're, you're able to deny yourself doing something that a novelist that is writing their first might make that mistake and just put in way too many details that they're standing around looking at. I think it's a combination of both. Um, first of all, yes, at the very beginning, you're tempted to use a lot of the research and, and you are kind of awed by it. 
but that is, um, you know, I like the image of an iceberg. You only show, you, you only show the very top. There's this whole mass of research underneath that shouldn't be seen. It's, it's the workings of the story that shouldn't be in the novel. Uh, if you flood the novel with, with details, everything becomes important and nothing becomes important. So it's really, really important to, um, to choose the right one. You know, it's the, um, part of it is experience, part of it just comes naturally from writing. You know, like when I'm writing the first draft, it's usually when I do the traveling and where I amass these images in my mind. So this, I'm still in the early stages of the novel at that point, and I don't know what I will use. You know, so I, I have photographs, I have notes from my travels, I have a lot of um, images that I remember. And then as I write, I sort of open the door to it. I said, hmm, what would I need from this? You know, oh, this one would be okay. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes at the rewrite stage, I say, no, that's not it. Let me open that door again. Let me go through these pictures again, let me, or these notes, and maybe I'll pick up something better. And then very often, you know, as the model progresses and deepens, your choice of details may differ. Um, and, and yes, it was tempting, to, it's always tempting tempting to say too much but I by now I I you know I don't like that when I read I don't like to read you know if I want information I will read an a, you know a, an article that gives me information I don't want it in a novel I want it seamless in a novel so I think I've learned that already um and and um yes I caught myself at saying oh that's a little bit too much uh, but that's what the highlighting is as I, I told you about at the very beginning you know the novel is done the painting is finished but then you take a small brush and you highlight what needs to come forward or you sort of tone what is too much in your face and at that stage you know there's this last reshuffle of details when I'm tempted to say more or I think that the story deserves more, more attention I was saying okay that could be a wonderful topic for a blog for an interview I can talk about it um, and and that in that way I'm not losing this material I'm thinking of the whole novel the, this whole uh, my explanation of where it came from oh this I can you know this would be perfect for this blog or this will be perfect for this uh, uh, question that I'm asked but um, I'm pretty disciplined by now of not weighing the novel too much it has to be it has to create I have to invite you into a different world and I cannot spoil your participation but saying well wait a minute Dean at this point you have to learn this and this and this and this <laughs> because I would break my voice you know and and also my characters would look at a lot of things around them and consider them natural why would they comment about the shape of something sure. that I know has changed right so you have to to add that to the story. I wanted to ask you another example of detail, and that's in the voice, what people are saying. People are speaking in the 18th century dialect. That's always a challenge that I find fascinating for novelists. You don't want anachronisms to slip in. But in this case, we're also talking about French. You're there in Ontario, right next to the French-speaking province of Quebec. Quebec French is much different from the French day-to-day -day, somebody speaking the accent things like that we we're just talking about leaving your homeland and coming to north america and how different your life is well the french people experience the same thing right they're not they're not completely steeped in it as much as their heart may still be back in france so that is maybe in the back of your mind and also when people are, are writing french there's such a temptation because we've been flooded with so many images that they could come out sounding like pepe le pew because you have that stereotypical accent, Maurice Chevalier, things that make people cringe if they are French, just as Polish, just as Greek people have this background and they say, well, that's not our culture. We don't sound like that. That's just, that's just wrong. Sometimes there's a word that they'll say and you say, that's not even a real word. For instance, Canada, the word hoser, everybody, every American and a lot of Canadians now use that, that term hoser. That was just a made up word that came from the Bob and Doug McKenzie routine that they were doing. And now people use it as if it's a real word. And well, that's all words are made up, right? At one point we had no words in the human story, but that that's the kind of thing that fascinates me. So here in the School of Mirrors, how do you go about making those characters sound authentically as if they're from the period and meet all of those challenges that could have derailed you and could have you, I imagine, pounding your fist and saying they, they just don't sound right. 
Well, first of all, I don't ever try to imitate the, the 18th century language uh, fully because it's impossible. It would not read well. It will, um, you know, th that I'm not really able to speak 18th century language, forget French or Polish or English or any other. So I, all I have is I have a lot of 18th century sources. So books in, in 18th century English and 18th century French. So I, I think my first um, attempt is knowing that I will never recreate that language. I want to capture some of its flavor some, you know, so maybe I, I'm using more or less contemporary English um, to, but from time to time, I'm using an expression that was authentic to the time that is either trans, I mean, I'm writing still in English, right? So it's translated, but there's an expression, there's a proverb, there's maybe a description, a, a comparison. Um, so usually when I read the 18th century memoirs related to my novel, I keep a little file of interesting expressions, interesting comparisons that I would not have made. You know, a lot of it's religious, which of course feeds very well to the 18th century world, but a lot of it is, is just odd to me or interesting. But so I have a list of these expressions and sort of note whether they were used at court or among servants or who was saying that. And if I have a chance to use it, I do. But it is very, you know, maybe once a page, maybe every two or three pages, I have a moment like that. That I feel adds authenticity to the voice, but it doesn't pretend to be that voice. Um, and uh, the rest of it, like I was, there, there are scenes in the novel written in, in the thoughts of Marie Leszczyńska, you know, to the Polish woman who is the French queen. I, even though she was Polish as any aristocrat, she was brought up in French, right? You know, she had French governesses, you know, it was the, the language of the 18th century was French at the courts, you know, maybe not in England, but in European courts, that was very, very important. So I have her letters in French written to her parents and to her mother. And to, so she corresponds in, in this private correspondence is conducted in French, not in Polish. So I read it for expressions. And some of these expressions I actually used in this in the novel. So how she was, you know, and sometimes she would use a Polish word. So I also have in her thoughts, sometimes she uses a Polish word, but very rarely and, and very specific ones, you know. So her Polish nickname, for example, is taken from that letter. And so other and other words. So I'm trying to, to, to do that, but uh, I keep a contemporary English um, voice, which differs from character to character. Madame de Pompadour speaks in a different way than her servants. And of course, the, you know, Veronique um, speaks in a certain way and her daughter speaks in a different way. So there is, there is that. Uh, and that I am trying to recreate um, only in fragment and also through specific 18th century sources. So I think that that allows me to not to get into stereotypes because these voices that are recorded, you know, I can read French. So I, uh, even though, um, again, writing in English, I would have to translate it myself, whatever I find. But I, I think I, I like to immerse myself in the voices and use some of them or some fragments of them. You have a phrase speaking here of, the words and the importance on them. Little birds, how you refer to these young women. And I noticed earlier, in fact, there was when you were just talking about the court and here I did it just myself, right? You you hesitate. And this is something that you were mentioning there in, in your bringing with your mother and, and then being in the monarchy is you keep quiet and you use euphemisms for things. And this phrase, little birds for these young women was so vivid to me and it jumped out at me. And I wanted to ask you, what the symbolism meant to you? Is that something that came up in your research or is it something that you just picked up in another spot? What does that term mean to you, little birds? First of all, it is one of the examples of the specific words used to describe these, you know, so this is an authentic piece of 18th century French language. They were referred to, these girls were referred to as little birds. 
So, and I immediately, as like you, I immediately picked it up and I thought that's that, you know, there's the whole image to it. There's the cage, there's the gilded cage. There's the, uh, they are small birds. They are not like the hawks and falcons that are dangerous and beautiful and powerful. They are small and significant. At that time, you know, they were, they were hunted for food as well. And, you know, in many European countries. And that was, uh, it, it, that was, that image, worked for me in in men but it was suggested by the sources that's an example of finding something in history and then sort of trying to understand it and trying to put it in 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 the what will that do to the novel how would that affect the novel and it does because you you know you have that image of a of a chirping bird beautiful and and yet so fragile so easy to destroy because uh on the on on the other and one of the very important themes in the novel is that beauty and innocence can be destroyed very quickly and never recovered you know the, the price for this gilded cage is horrible um, and and you know the the palace thinking in terms of oh these women are taken care of these girls are taken care of you know they're giving dowry they are married off they they would be better they are better off than they would have been before they don't take into account the emotional states the the being the chosen and then dropped and maybe being emotionally involved in this whole dirty business uh, of manipulation. They were not going willingly to it. And, you know, I have to, I almost have to bring uh, Catherine the Great back because, you know, Catherine the Great at that time, and, and of course I, I wrote two novels about her. I was very intimate with her. She was vilified by that, at that time, by French, the French king and everybody in the courts all over Europe, because as a 60 year old woman, she took a 20 year old lover, right? That was her last lover. Zuboff was 20 when she was 60. And they were all in arms saying, how could she do that? Well, first of all, Platon Zuboff knew exactly what he was getting into. It was he. It was fully consensual on his part. His whole family loved the idea because he became the favorite at court and therefore had enormous power. And 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 she was open about it. He had a position at court. It was. It had nothing to do with this sort of uh, expo sexual exploitation. But she was a woman, and Louis the Fifteenth was a man. So you know. We are we are talking about two different standards of of one is create one is vilified and one well little birds who cares about little birds right uh, and one indistinguishable from the next for one thing there we could have just had this interview on that phrase little birds and what it represents here that to me is great writing two words you did more heavy lifting than if you wrote an entire thick book here of just details we get so much more as readers here in the school of mirrors just from two words and the way you use them so i'm glad you plucked those out and i also wanted to point out that Two things is uh, one thing is this cat has a Polish name. You put it in an old gray cat and Nutuka. I don't know. I've never tried to say it out loud because I only read it in the book, but there's some symbolism too, right? An old cat, you made the cat gray haired and then you have all these little birds around. So I, I thought that was interesting. It might not have been intentional, but it is some wonderful symbolism. And that's that's a sign of good writing too. There may be things in it that the novelist didn't even know about. Well, it does happen. Absolutely. I'm even re reading, you know, I wrote this introduction, the passage that I read, I wrote along, you know, before I wrote anything else in the novel. And as I'm reading it now, I say, oh, there's the, the reference to dead mice, which becomes extremely important later in the novel, as if I knew that that would happen, you know? So yes, there's a lot of these little um, details that suddenly, as I reread it many, many you know, years, in fact, because the writing took a long time, and already there, there were some bits and pieces of what would come uh, that I wasn't even aware off myself because uh, I am not good at plotting my novel or seeing my novel. I don't sit down to write when the novel is ready in my head. I write and discover what the novel is about. So a lot of the last decisions, you know, of what would happen in the last part of the novel was sort of made in the last year of writing. Well, this part was written almost at the very beginning, and yet I see elements of it. So yes, you're right that a lot of it's sub subconscious. Well, you get so much out of this novel. I could continue talking with you for hours and I will 
be fortunate to be able to speak with you over email about it, especially once I finish the novel, finish the School of Mirrors. But I, I wanted to close by asking you to make your pitch because this is a period that is fascinating to many people, but also it's a little bit shrouded. It comes in that period that's for people in North America. It's certainly before there's a Canada. It's before there's a United States. It may seem intimidating. People may think that they're going to find a lot of that French language, which, as you just said, is something that you don't do. You don't don't weigh it down with that. You want people to be able to read in modern language. You want modern readers to be able to enjoy the School of Mirrors. So tell people if they haven't picked up an Eva Stachniak novel before, I will tell them that they are missing out. But I will leave it to you since you are modest. You don't have to say that to them. But why would you say to them, if that's not the kind of novel you read, pick up the School of Mirrors and step a little bit outside of that comfort zone get a new story i wrote this book for you you wrote this book for as many people as possible so even if people don't know about much about the monarchy they don't think this book is for them because they're a little bit intimidated by that period explain to them why you think they should pick up the school of mirrors they got a little taste of it just a minute ago at the beginning if they're not hooked yet and they probably are tell them why you'd like to see them pick up the book not for you but because they'll enjoy it well, I think that uh, I, what I like to do is I like to take the reader's hand and say, come with me. I'm going to show you something incredible, beautiful, moving, something that will make you want to learn what happened to the people I am introducing you to that would make you cry with them and love them. And uh, I will show you a wonderful place where it all happens and you will leave enriched by the story by the characters that are universal that experience is universal it is not just france in the 17th 18th century it is life it is life of those who have power and those who don't have power these are people caught in great historical events it's like we are caught now through the pandemic in 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 the forces that are far greater than we are uh, and uh, we have to cope. Think that this is not, it has happened many times before. How did people cope before? What did they learn? What they can teach us? And um, if you want parallels, if you you know, then think about the Me Too movement and the women who came forward with stories of sexual exploitation that would fit beautifully in the School of Mirrors. They would not even be noticed in the School of Mirrors because they would be so common. When you think about everything that's happening, you know, the whole trial of of um, the enablers of Jeff Epstein, you know, then think about the Deer Park and, and the trafficking of young girls for Louis XV. It is happening right now. It is happening to us as well. It is the, not distance. History is not distance. History is not even past. History is teaching. It's uh, showing us. It's, it's a mirror that reflects the different world, but not that world is still our world. And we are part of it as much as the characters, are, the 18th century characters are part of our lives, you know. So for me, it has always been interesting. I've always, I know you love history too. You've always had the same attitude to history, but uh, I don't go to it because it's, you know, it's, it's distant. I go to it because it's relevant. It's contemporary. It's meaningful to me. And I hope to my readers too. Eva Stachniak, author of the novel, The School of Mirrors. You all out there have read a great book that you loved and you get to that last page and you wish the story could go on. That's how I feel about this interview. I just found myself as I asked you to give your final answer, feeling a little pang there. Sad that this interview is over, but looking forward to sharing the book to everybody. Looking forward to letting you get back to your next great book. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining me today to have this discussion, to share the School of Mirrors with us. It is really immersive was the word that was used in the review that i read and that is so true it is very special if you love words if you love stories if you love being able to hold up that mirror look into that historical mirror to what's going on today i can't think of a better novel than the school of mirrors you'll enjoy it pick it up eva best of luck with the book i'm so glad that you wrote it and thank you for your time today again thank you so much dean it was such a pleasure to talk to you again thank you pleasure was all mine all of us little birds out there have to stick together. Thank you. Again, the novel is The School of Mirrors. As always, you can find that Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, 
you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Eva Stachniak for joining us. As you can tell, I have a real affection for her as a person and a real admiration for her as an author. I really, really enjoy a well-written story. And when you can see the mechanics there a little bit, which hopefully you were able to see today in some of my questions, it makes you appreciate it that much more. I can't think of a better guide for us back to 18th century France, not just to meet the people that were out in the forefront, the kings and queens, but the people who were down on the lower rungs, people who were let in through that back door, the people who were kept shoved in the shadows. It's really a special story, and I think all of us, feeling a little bit like little birds ourselves these days, can really relate to it. Please do visit her at evastachniak.com for more of this wonderful historical fiction. And you can follow her on Twitter and Facebook as well. If you enjoyed our conversation today, please do check out our interview about her novel, The Chosen Maiden. That's in our History Author Show archives. Since it's audio only, you won't get to see our faces, but if you did enjoy watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube and Rumble channels for future trips in the Wayback Machine. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this trip into yesterday. Until that next journey into the past together, on behalf of Eva Stachniak and the little birds past and present, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in